0: Man, Salvation does belong to our God. I mean, that is good news because if it didn't belong to God, then that means it belongs to us. And how many know that if it belongs to you, like there is no hope. Uh, Only people that know them can actually say that is true. Uh, But salvation does belong uh, to our God. Well, it is time for the word of God. And I'm excited that I get to sit and just hear the word of God and be fed today. Uh, I do have a good, 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 dear friend uh, that is up here to preach today. Uh, him and I met in 2012. We actually did our church plant residencies together. He is the lead pastor at um, lead pla- pastor, church planner at Restoration in Philadelphia. And our residencies, we did residencies at the same church, Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia. And uh, we overlapped our rev- residencies by a year, and so there was a there was a year that we actually shared an office together, uh, and I learned so much about him in that year. Number one, he cannot sing, and so if he gets up here and tries to sing, I just want y'all to boo him, just like like literally boo him. I'm not even kidding. Um, he he is a he's a good friend, but I learned so much from you know when we talk about you know what is DNA. Our, our church here is serious about being in relationship, discipleship relationships, about accountability, uh, and he, he is somebody that I, I personally am in DNA with, discipleship, account, uh, accountability, and uh, nurturing, and I can't tell you how many times I pick up the phone and call him uh, just to wrestle through things that I'm I'm wrestling with, or I can pick up the phone and call him and say, man, I just do not get this text, uh, and he is like crazy brilliant, and he, he can work me through a text, and so I'm just grateful for his friendship, his wife Kelly is here as well, and their beautiful family. Uh, and so if you guys can just do me a favor, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll have him up. And I just want you guys to give him a Brooklyn welcome like he's like Michael Jackson coming up to perform. I just want y'all to go crazy and give him a good welcome. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man cannot live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And today we just believe that God is going to speak to us right out of what he's already spoken his word through Watson. So let's uh, point our heads hands his way. Father, I'm so grateful for my friend, my brother, Pastor Watson. Thank you for um, his faithfulness in church planning, his faithfulness to his family, his faithfulness ultimately to you. Um, And he's a better husband because of you. He's a better pastor because of you. He's a better church planner because of you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use him today in a mighty way. I pray that you would just give him clarity of thought and clarity of speech and pray that he would would speak only what is in the word of God. And anything that's outside of that, he just completely leave out. And so we pray that you would use him. Holy Spirit, move on us. We need prayer as well. We're not just praying for him, but in order to hear your word, we need you to rest on our hearts. Those that know you in this room, we pray that you would encourage our hearts and convict us. And those that do not know you, we're thankful that they are here. I pray that you would save them today. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today through your gospel. It is in Christ's name and Christ's name alone, we pray. Amen. Y'all give them a good welcome, y'all.
1: So the part that Brandon didn't tell you is that everything that he said is the opposite. Um, Brandon is actually the guy who disciples me and uh, you know, I call him for deep questions and he's able to help me. But first, before we begin, uh, give God a hand of praise for your pastor. Now, some of you may come from backgrounds where you understand that, you know, giving honor to the Lord for your pastor. Some of you that may be foreign, but let me tell you, your pastor prays for you. He labors before the Lord for you. He labors in the text, in the scriptures for you. And the scripture talks about those who labor in the word are worthy of the honor that they receive. And so you always want to be lifting your pastor up, but he's a godly man. He loves Jesus with all his heart. He loves his wife and his kids, and, uh, and you should just never take that for granted. Uh, and so Brandon, I thank you for having me here. It is a joy and a privilege for me to come. I mean, I'm glad to be here. Brent, I see you smiling there, man. How you feeling? And last but not least, my lovely wife. Um, she hates when I put her on blast, so I ain't going to put her too far on blast, but that's my boo. And I'm glad, I'm glad that she loved me. You know, we'll be married for 11 years. And I look every bit as old as you think I am, if not older. She looks every bit younger than she actually is. And I just praise God that he just blessed me to marry up. Amen. That's points, right? I got points, right? Right. If you have your Bibles, won't you take a moment and open with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. David Hackley teaches my daughter piano, teaches like 9,000 people in my church. I ain't got 9,000 people in my church, but 9,000 people in my church, different instruments. Good to see you, brother. Um, When you're there, say I'm there. Looking, say still looking. Don't be thrown back about at least my secret expectation of you speaking back to me. Uh, You know, I I prefer it. You know, just say something, you know, hey, you know, and uh, just don't tell me to shut up or sit down. But speak back, you know, by all means. It's all good. When you're there, say I'm there. Looking, say still looking. All right, we all are there. We're going to read a Psalm 8, and we're going to go from 1 all the way to 9. It says, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and birds of the heaven and fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth? I want you to turn to the neighbor next to you and help me announce this topic. Yes, you're going to talk to him. Say, neighbor. Today we're going to talk about about what what looking up teaches you. Turn to the person on the other side. Yeah. Say, neighbor. What do you see when you look up? You you look up? <clears throat> Let's pray. That's my part. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this moment. This time where we have time and space and history where you speak to your people. Father, we don't enter into this moment lightly. I don't enter into this moment lightly. The fact that you delight to use me unworthy me, to proclaim your word still baffles me. And I pray that you would first let me decrease, decrease all the way down, that you might increase. I pray that you give me clarity of thought, boldness of speech, to proclaim the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so that your people would be lifted up, encouraged, strengthened, That Christ would have attention drawn to him. That if there are unbelievers in our midst, they'd come to know you. And if there are people who know you, just lift them up. And I pray, Father, that you would hide me behind the cross of Christ. That the brilliance of Jesus, the glory of our Savior, would shine so brightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen may look this way. As one travels the world, it is nearly impossible to come away from it without feeling its beauty. And when I say feeling, I mean different from seeing its beauty, but it's impossible to come away with feeling some sense of its beauty. It is difficult to stand along the side of Niagara Falls and not be taken back by the beauty and awe of the water that cascades over its cliffs to the bottom. Or to ski on the Alps and not be taken back by the sheer size of these massive structures that shoot up out of the ground. It's nearly impossible to peer through the towering trees of the redwood forest and not be taken away by the beauty and the awe of the sheer size of these trees. There is a wonderful display of artistry when we see the catalog or the species of birds and bugs and animals that exist. It's impossible to take this in and not think about it for a second. There is an attractiveness to these things. There is a peaceful eternality to these things. And if left long enough, you can come with the ontological question in your heart, is there someone beyond this? Then after that ontological question, you're stuck with the existential question. If there is one beyond this, then why am I here to experience this? Now I know many of us are sophisticated and we have scientific explanations for these things, but, but something in our hearts makes us ask these questions even when our minds tell us something different. Something in our hearts makes us wonder, is there someone beyond this? Is there a reason for me here In them, there is something resounding loudly that points us to a God. And it is for this reason that kids will say, mommy and daddy, who made all this? And sometimes even when you're struggling in your faith, you got to say, I think God made it, baby. It's difficult to walk away and not feel the beauty. This is what this particular psalm is. This psalm, the psalmist, is looking at the creation. He is looking at and examining all that God has made. And and he is reflecting on the beauty, the majesty of God based on what he sees. Now, notice he has never seen God face to face, never touched his hand and shaked his hand. He has only experienced God, but he's seeing all that God has made. And all that God has made is speaking something to him. And it is causing this psalmist to sit back and to reflect. You you know those quiet moments at night when you're by yourself and you're thinking about the world that you live in? You're thinking about nature that exists even outside of this concrete jungle. It It is causing this psalmist to think about God. And so as we enter into this text, Psalm 8. I believe this psalm is sculpted to show us this, that the God who carefully crafted all that we see, he still cares for us. Let me let me see if I can say it a different way, that the wonderful God, the brilliant God who so masterfully created all of this, who who was able to give color to things that we think color should not be in, who has been able to display his beauty in it all, the God who is creative, who has created all of this yet still has a concern for you. That's enough to shout on right there. The fact that God can make all this, know all this, have wisdom beyond us, have creativity beyond us, but yet know the hairs on your head or the lack thereof. And so I believe that as we, as we step through this passage, as we work our way from verses one down to nine, I think there are three things that the Lord is going to show us that this great God shows us. One, he's going to show us that, his, that God shines through his creation, but, but then he's also going to show that, that, that God shows us that there is a mystery of his care for us. Then also there is the significance that we have to him. As we begin in verse 1, we see that the psalmist, David, begins to say, O oh Lord, our Lord, if you're looking at your Bible, you probably noticed that the first Lord is all caps. Somebody may have wondered, why is that all caps? You'd have to understand the ancient Near Eastern Jewish mind as he reads and writes this. He's, he's looking at this name, Lord, which we see, and he's understanding the name that was given to his people to call God Yahweh. It is the name that says, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. It is a name that says God is too massive, too great to be summed up in a simple statement. That it is, he doesn't even have a name. There is no one there to even name him, to give him a name, but we'll just describe him by what he is. That he is the God who was there yesterday, the God who is here today, and the God who will always be. He is what he is, and he will be what he be. He says this is Yahweh the God who is massive the God who sits high on the throne that no one sits over him and sometimes in the church we have to be reminded of the transcendence of God and sometimes in the name of making him our personal God which he is we sometimes can forget how massive he is and our lives sometimes can line up as if God ain't serious As if God is not the strong one, the powerful one, the one who cannot be summed up in a statement. The God who was brilliant enough to know all about you before there was a you. That God. He says, this is the God that I'm calling Yahweh. Sometimes you got to remember when you bow your knees before the Lord when you approach him in song, that that the only reason why you have right to stand there because someone has given you that right, because he is a God that is too big and too holy to even be approached by us without someone vouching. We'll get there in a second. He says this Yahweh, who is Lord, but he is our Lord. While he sits high, as the old folk would say, and looks low, some of y'all knew I was going with that. (laughs) While he sits high and looks low, he is yet still our Lord. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Uh, You got to see the beauty in that. Oh, Lord, who sits high but yet still looks at me. Oh, Lord, who sits high and sees all and hears the prayers of millions at one time is still my Lord to hear my prayers at a given moment. The Lord who cannot be confused by too many messages coming in at once is able to decipher your call for help. Oh, Lord. My Lord, there is a sense where you have to be reminded that although God is big, although God is great, if you've come to him through Jesus Christ, he is still your personal Lord. Which means that although he might know the person next to you knows their issues, he is intimately concerned and knows about yours as well. The psalmist says, "O oh Lord, my Lord, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We look at name here. We we sometimes don't understand what this means because in our culture, we give very little weight to name. We just name kids because it's cute. (laughs) We see a baby and say, you look like a Brent. I'm picking on you because you're on the front row and I'm going to call you Brent. We we see a baby and says, you look like a Jennifer. I'm going to call you Jennifer. Or for my black folk in the room, you take it back to the 90s. And, you know, we went through a period where we got massively creative with some names. We took some stuff that just don't match. We took letters that don't go together and just threw them in a bag and shook that joker up and pulled that sucker out and said, your name Bonquisha. Now, if your name is Bonquisha in this room, feel feel no shame on that. Uh, your, your name is Shalafonte I, I remember when I was in Chicago I, I was a youth pastor and there was a girl who came up to me and she said some name I can't even I tried to remember it and I said I said okay we gonna what's, you got a nickname what can I call you <laughs> she had a twin whose name was just like that but it was kind of altered a bit you know we got creative names in the ancient Jewish mind had meaning you, you named somebody something because you wanted to communicate something. My daughter's name, for instance, is Yeshia. Folk butcher it all the time. That, that name simply means the Lord saves. It, it, it is saying something, not even about you, but, it, but it's communicating something great. When the psalmist then says, how great is your name? Again, you have to think about the fact that David has never shaken God's hand. David has never walked into the church and said, there's God sitting there. David has only experienced him. David has only known God through faith, but all he has to hang his life on is a name. He says, God, how great is your name? In other words, simply put it, how great is your person? Your reputation is wrapped up in your name. How great are you, God? He says, God, our God, our Lord, how great are you? There is no one in the world who can match you. Let me pause and put a parenthetical there. There are people and things that we search for in our lives that we think can fulfill us in ways that only the unmatchable God can fulfill us. There is nothing that can match him is what the psalmist is saying. How great is your name in all the earth. He says you have set your glory above the heavens. He says you look high and you see these massive clouds that Look small to you until you get on a plane and hit one of them. You you ever noticed on an airplane that when you hit a cloud, you feel it. It, It's not just like, oh, we just going through mist. You hit a cloud, the plane kind of jerks. You see these massive things and you see the sky that is spread as far as the east is from the west, as far as the north is from the south. The psalmist is saying, you have set your glory even above that. He's saying, I look out and I see that although this sky is massive, what he's trying to say is that someone bigger sits outside of this. Right. That There is nothing like the beauty of a sunset when the lithium sun hits you. It, even scientists talk about this. It has the ability to lower your anxiety, that you can stare at the sun when it's going down and it brings a sense of calm when you see it. Now, I know some of y'all probably ain't seen the sun in a minute. Probably haven't seen the sun rise or set because stuff seems to block your view. But only when you go to the country and you sit back on your deck and you look out as you see the sun go down and it, it shows a beautiful light that, that you can't even put a crayon to. And it calms you down and gives you a sense of peace. He says, God, you've caused your glory to be set above that. In other words, these clouds, this sun that goes up and goes down, shouts something about you it says something about your beauty it says something about your brilliance it says something about your eternality think about it the sun is going to rise and fall even over your drama your drama may come one day and go the next but the sun will rise and go down tomorrow you will get up and lord willing the sun will rise and go down it was there before you were born and it'll be there after you. This is what creation says. Although your stuff might be a bit much, although it seems to bear you down, there is a God who sits timelessly above all of that. Oh, God, my God, how great are you? He goes deeper into verse two and says that while on one hand, creation screams about God. Look at who he says screams about him now. He says out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength you can miss the poetry here you can read this and see this literally in some sense babies do have a bit of girth when they scream Uh, there is something about the streak the shriek of a child's cry that can drive you insane Uh, don't 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 act like it I'm talking to myself the only time a child don't really drive you insane is when it's your child but even then it just the Lord gives you grace for a few moments and then you fight the urge from just slamming your head through a wall when they're screaming. because you know, So this is not what the psalmist is meaning in terms of their strength in the voice of a child screaming. But in the ancient Near East, the children were the most insignificant people in society. This is very different from today, where you have a baby and there are entire markets created for your child. You spend an unseen amount of money for a wasted crib if they're going to sleep in for maybe a year or two, or let's not even talk about the crib because you can convert that to a bed, Let, let's talk about the little co-sleeper. I remember when we had our three kids, I got three, and we had a little co-sleeper. This thing is only meant to last for six months because the baby just gets too big, you can't fit in it, but it's $150. You have uh, baby showers and people spend all kinds of money. You, Decorate rooms and put paintings up because this is for your baby. And before you knew it, you've spent a thousand dollars on somebody who ain't even here yet. In the ancient Near East, babies had very little significance. They sat on the lowest part of the totem pole in society, mostly because they could not provide for themselves. The largest, poorest class, and truthfully, even in America today, were kids. Those who could not get jobs, those who could not work on their own. So kids had very little significance. Some of y'all even understand that. When you were a kid and you would go into a room and the grown folks was talking, you couldn't even speak. Grown folks spoke and you shut up. You were seen and not heard. Now, you still had some significance, but, but maybe you're getting the picture that in the psalmist's mind, the child, the infant, the children had no importance. But yet David is saying it is from their mouths that they have been given strength. They, they proclaim something about you. There is something that the psalmist is saying that God majors in using insignificance to proclaim greatness. There are people sitting here right now. Who are struggling with whether or not God can use you God you must not know about my weakness you must not know about my struggles you must not know about where I've been you must not know about the promises that I've broken you must not know who I am that I don't want the church to see who I am God could you possibly have a way to even use me but we serve a God our Lord who is able to use that which is insignificant Let me show you some proof. Come here, Moses. I can see when God calls Moses and says, Moses, I want you to proclaim freedom for my people. Moses says, but I got a stuttering problem. Something about when I stand before people, I can't even get my sentence out. How are you going to use me to speak? And God equips Moses through his brother to set the people free. Come here, David. As God calls David to be the king, you can see as Samuel walks into David's room. And says, who is this, gonna, this king going to be? And you can see as the first brother of David comes in and Samuel says, that looks like a king. And God says, no, nah, not him. He looks like he wants to be king. It's not going to be this one. You can see as the next brother comes in and Samuel says, yeah, that's the king right there. And God says, no, nah, not him. And you can see as he goes from brother to brother until he meets a boy out there keeping the sheep. You don't understand how messed up that is. That means David smelt like crap. As he sat there and picked poop off of the sheep's back, and God says, that's my king, God is able to take people who are deemed insignificant, people who feel like they aren't articulate, they don't have nothing to give, nothing to contribute, and God is able to use the insignificant to claim greatness about him. Why? Because those who know they are insignificant or feel insignificant ain't going to steal his glory. Those who know they ain't come to the table with a lot, those who know they ain't studied enough, they ain't lived right enough, that God is going to say, that's who I can use because they ain't going to feel like I owe them a thing. God is able to take the insignificant. Now, if you see even in verse one, as God is causing two ideas to converge upon something, he's saying that on one hand, this creation speaks, but on the other hand, this no group of people speak. Why? He says in verse two, you've established strength because of your foes. Your enemies, God, those who are opposed to you. He says to steal your enemy and your avenger. In other words, he's saying there, there'll come a time where the Lord will meet. folk. You, you do understand that although you may feel like life, you got a million years ahead of you. There comes a time where Hebrew says it is appointed for us to die once. And then comes judgment. That, that doesn't matter how much money you got in your pocket. How much education you have, that there comes a time where every person, black, white, male, female, urban, suburban, rural, will stand before God who will run your life on a megatron and scrutinize it. And ask you, what did you do with it? Gonna ask you, what did you do with the Jesus who was proclaimed? This is what he's saying. Creation shouted, but then those who are insignificant shouted. Because the greatness of God is communicated through the insignificant and the creation so that no man has an excuse. Those who are enemies of him. Now that's that's not PC. It's not politically correct to say anybody is ever an enemy of God. What is the enemy of God? This ain't the folk who just say, I ain't going to church. This is all of us apart from Jesus. This is every last one of us who are born with the proclivity and the inclination towards sin. This is, this is all of us who were born who, who were born to, to do what we want to do and not what God wants. Those who were born with a bent to say, I live my life for me and no one else. Those of us who were born, all of us from the front of the church to the sides of the church, were born with a bent towards sin. You, you couldn't change it yourself. As Lady Gaga said, you were born this way, where, where we live our lives solely for us and our sin puts us in hostility with God. And the psalmist is saying that creation shouts about that, the beautiful skies and the insignificant people. But then we we go on further, and second point, says the greatness of God reveals the mystery of his care. Here's the psalmist. He's thinking about how God speaks through insignificance and God speaks through creation. And he says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you set in place... You're reading a psalm here, and you can miss the poetry. You you almost got to see David as he's talking about this. Can't, Can't you see him as he's sitting at his desk, and he's reflecting, and he's writing? And then all of a sudden, he takes a break. David steps out on his balcony, and you can see him as he looks to the sky. He's not looking at anything in particular, but he notices how the sky is spread out like a blanket and he can see stars that have been thrown into place. He can see the moon as it shines down and smiles at him. He can see the shooting stars that go across the sky and it takes him back a second. He says, when I consider your fingers, this is anthropomorphic language to say that God has crafted what we see. He's seeing this and saying this is not just happenstance. But this is something that an artist does. This this is an artist who shapes something to his liking. This is an artist who paints the sky to her liking. He's saying, when I look at this, I'm taken aback. The next question he poses, what is man? Don't, don't, Don't think he's being a sexist here. He's literally saying, what is humankind? What is man and woman that you are mindful of him or her? He says, I look at all of this and I say, You have brilliantly created this wonderful canopy. What is it that you care about me? David sees the greatness of God through his creation and is quickly taken to the point of saying, I don't deserve it. There is a mystery, God, that if you can do this, Why in the world do you think about me? Who it is, man, that you are mindful? This mindful is an idea of of deep thought, that, that he's able to see humankind and not just know stuff about you, but is intimately aware of you. That God can create this, but know your problems. God can paint the sky, but know your issues. God can throw the stars where they are, but know your pain. God can place the moon where it is and the sun where it is, but know your hangups, that God can do all of this, can bring you to a place of saying, but why do you care for me? Let me take it down your street just a little bit longer. Some of you know yourself. Some of you know the real you of yourself. You got your church look. You got your makeup on. I hope you brushed your teeth. You lined your face up. You then did your hair a little bit. You ironed your shirt maybe, but you know you. You know exactly who you are. You know the part of you that you don't want no one to ever see. You know the part of you that you never tell anybody, even when you tell people what God has done for you. You never tell them about you. You never talk about the part of you that you are ashamed to even face yourself. And yet God, who has made it all, is mindfully knowledgeable of who you are. He says, who is man, who is womankind, that you are mindful that you even care for us. That although he has sculpted this, he has a profound, deep care for you, even when you feel careless, even when you feel like no one can care for you. There is a God watching who cares for you, who sees you when you wonder how you're going to pay your bills. There is a God who cares for you, who sees your tears when they fall off your face. There is a God who is mindful of you. When your heart breaks and no one can mend it, there is a God who sees it and and yearns and desires to mend it. The God who is able to make it all is mindful of us. There is a sense that even before we utter a prayer, even before we say, God help me, God knows your situation. There is a God who is mindful of us. He is taken aback for a second to say this creation is massive. There is a mystery about your care that I have not quite figured out. Who is it that you're mindful of us? He says this in verse five, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. He's, he's now bumping into our third point which is how this great God shows us our significance to him. He says, you're mindful of us. Who are we that you're mindful of? But, but then you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the heavenly beings being angels. You have made humans a little bit lower than them. And you have crowned him or her with glory and honor. This is dealing with humanity. And, and it is saying that God has done something different with you than he's done with your animals. That although you love your pet, although your dog, who no one else likes, (laughs) you will die for him or her. Although your cat that your housemates and your guests wish you would get rid of, you love it and God cares about it too, but there is something unique about you. He says you have crowned humans with glory. You have, in one sense, as Genesis would say, given us your image. You have given us something that animals, that nothing else in this world possesses. You have placed your fingerprint on us. And it's not based on who you are, what side of the tracks you're from, what part of the country you're from, what city you're in. It is all across the board. God has crowned humankind with glory. Not glory in a sense where stuff bows down to you, but it's something that God has imparted to you to make you something. Let me see if I can unpack this a bit. This This is in one sense pointing to the equal dignity that all of humanity shares, which is the reason why racism, oppression, it is a sin to God, not just in a sense of, oh, it's evil, but it is a smack in the face of God Here's what Nicholas Walterstorff says to inflict injury on a fellow human being is to wound God himself. Why? Because God has placed humankind who have his image. He has placed his crown on them. And so when you look at somebody who may be different from you and you turn your nose up, it is turning your nose up at God. Some of y'all may say, well, I'm past that. I'm post that. Let's talk about the friends you got that you don't really like. Let's talk about the family members you can't stand. Let's let's talk about your neighbor who you treat like crap. Let's talk about your coworker who you rather not deal with. This is what he's saying, that all people have been given something by God and has been crowned by his with his glory. There is equality in this sense here. He says you're mindful of us and you have made us all worthy of dignity. You have made us all important to you. It's ought to change our outlook and how we see things. He's showing us significance. He says, you have crowned him with glory and honor for a reason. Verse 6, you have given him and her dominion over the works of your hands. Now let me pause there for a second. It's nothing like taking the time to create something. How many creatives do we have in the room? People who just create stuff. You just make stuff from nothing. You just you know paint stuff, design stuff. When you design what you design, be it whatever it is, are you going to put someone else's name on it? I mean, you know, you might be altruistic as the day is long, but you ain't going to put someone else's name on something you labored for. You visionized it. You thought it up. You went and got the materials for it. I mean, let's just talk about the training you went through to be able to do it. You're not going to say, okay, I'm going to make this and just, unless you're going to pay money for it, I'm just going to give it to you. This is in essence what the psalmist is saying. You have taken humankind and placed honor and glory on their head, and you have given them dominion, rulership, authority over the works of your hands. The God who has made the heavens and the earth passes it to us and says, steward it. The God who has made all that we can see says, I want you to sit on the seat of it. I want you, and we ain't necessarily done such a good job with it, by the way, uh, we, we have really squandered it and cost crap and all that stuff. But, but nonetheless, he says, I just want you to take it and roll with it. He says, I've given you this. I want you to steward over this. He says, over the sheep, the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the path of the sea. Simply saying, whatever swims in the water. I'm sitting you over that. This is the creative order. God makes everything ground dirt, and from that, he makes little roaches and animals and rats and all that stuff. And then he makes animals, and then, then he sits humans over that. It's like a pyramid where we're the apex. He says, I've set you over these things to have dominion over them. Now, any astute reader of this would say, okay, yeah, great. Praise God. There is significance. There is functionality in this significance. You, you place us to do this, but the very things that you place us over will kill us. Think about it. If you ain't careful. The fish that you swim in the water with will eat you. You go too deep or you go too far out, a shark bigger than your house will swallow you. <laughs> Brandon was telling me about a demon, y- y'all call them rats, um, that was on, the, was on the platform as he was walking with his earbuds on listening to Michael Jackson, trying to figure out how he's going to do his moonwalker all the way to the church. And, and, and everybody's standing there trying to get his attention and he just in another world. And then he sees this monstrositous demon just standing on the platform. And y'all know y'all rats. They don't, they're not other rats, like in other parts of the country. Rats generally run from people. They're afraid of people. These rats are, 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 are gangster rats. These, these rats are rats that have been plugged into some gang fifty years ago. They strapped. They ready to fight. You know, you ain't gonna walk on this platform that you made. Brandon tells me that this demon ran towards him. Now, now, I can only imagine yours truly standing there seeing that spawn of Satan running my direction and thinking about the bodily fluids that'll be on the ground. I said, Brandon, what you do? He said, I turned around and ran the opposite direction. Think about that. That God in one sense has placed you over that but them jokers will take you out. <laughs> Let, let's think about the other spawns of Satan that we see, not just here, but across the country, roaches, <laughs> carrying all kinds of diseases, bedbugs, you know, that stuff, all those types of things, dogs, pit bulls, dogs that, you know, are nice, but will tear yourself up. God puts you over these things, but these things can kill you. God puts you in this land, But yet a hundred thousand can be wiped out from a tsunami. It seems like the psalmist is saying something that is not in line with reality. God, how is it that you've given us dominion over this, but we ain't got the power to actually change nothing. Apart from running from a rat or spraying some raid on some roaches or calling exterminators or getting away from a pit bull. God, these things can take us out. There is a reason for this, because although this psalm is speaking about an ideal, it is christological in nature. Don't get lost on the terminology. It simply means it is pointing beyond that in which it speaks. It is is pointing beyond the humans that are hearing this psalmist and, and pointing to someone greater. It is saying that the world that we live in is in hostility with itself, that although God has placed you in it to love it, to, to run it, to rule it, to steward it in a right way, it can take you out because something here ain't right. Creation is intended to show you its beauty about God, but it's intended to make you cry out to him because something here is awry. You can look at it and say something about what we live in ain't right, that people who have the same amount of an I- I- image of God spread around can oppress one another, that-, that the people who are equal in God's eyes can take innocent lies, that the animals that you've made to put us over can take us out, that the bacterias you made for whatever function can take us out. There is a sense where God is saying something is wrong here. Here's the thing. God made us and he crowned us with glory and honor. But our first parents made the decision one day to say, I want to live the way I want to live. And God said, all right do what you want to do do you and god says i curse the ground that you walk on and as a result of it it will live against you And God says, but I'll fix this issue one day. You can see Jesus in heaven. When the man first made their first sin and ran away from God and turned, you can see as God's justice stood up at the table and said, God smacked them down and wiped them off the face of the earth. And as justice was fixing its mouth to finish the last word, Jesus stands up and says, God, let justice take a seat and let me go down and fix this thing. Jesus looks across the table at Justice and says, you go down to Calvary and wait for me to meet you there. And you can see Jesus as he would one day be born in the ghettos of Nazareth, as he would one day be born in a manger that he did not own. As he would one day lay on a bed of hay that had feces in it, as the savior of the world would be brought to this world to understand our issues, that Jesus would say, justice, wait for me, I'm almost there. He would heal people who needed to be healed. Justice, I'm on my way. He would feed people who needed to be fed, knowing justice is calling his name. He would give people sight, knowing that justice was down the road. And one day justice and Jesus would meet and Jesus would go to the cross with all your issues. Jesus would go to the cross with all your sin on his back. Jesus would go to the cross with your weakness on his back. Jesus would go to the cross with your pain on his back. And justice would have its day as God would pour out the punishment waiting for us. Those of us been crowned with glory, it would be waiting for us. And Jesus would hang on that cross. Let me tell you, he didn't do it because he was bored on a Friday night. He didn't do it because there was no game to watch, but he did it with you in mind. That while the creator of the world hung, he was mindful of you. That while the creator of the world took the beatings, he was mindful of you. That while the creator of the world knew death was around the corner, he was mindful of us. And Jesus hung there on that cross as he saw God turn his back on him. And he says, God, why have you forsaken me? as justice would laugh in his face, as Jesus would be forsaken so you would never have to be, and Jesus would hang on that cross, and you can see Jesus as he would bow his head down and breathe his last breath, and I wish I can tell you that was the end, but justice met its end and Jesus got up from the dead, Jesus got up from the grave as the grave clothes wrapped him and held him tightly. Jesus got up from the grave. Jesus showed how significant we were to him when he took your sin and took it to death and got up for you. The creation of God, the greatness of God is communicated in this. And we see his care for us. Drive this down your street a bit. You might have walked into church feeling low down. You might have walked into here feeling like a nobody. You might have walked in here feeling like there is nothing for you. You might have walked in feeling like you feel like giving it up. But the God who made all of this was mindful of you. He was mindful of you before you were born, and he is mindful of you now. And the greatest picture of his mindfulness of you and I is the fact that Jesus would die not for him but for us. God who created all of this can show us his care for us. The God who made all this can show us our significance to him. The God who created all of this will shout who he is through all of creation. It is this God who we sing to, and it is this God who we give worship and honor to, and it is this God who deserves all honor and praise because God cares for us. This is what Looking Up will teach you. Amen.